Now, I'd like this morning for a little while to turn back to uh, the, the uh, passage that we read together in uh, Acts, this uh, story of the early church. And uh, we, when we come together and, and we preach, we believe that God uh, still speaks through his word. It's a word that's relevant and important. So we spend a little time uh, around God's word. And if you're not used to that, I hope that you don't mind and that you'll survive uh, the time that we do spend around God's word today. And I hope that you'll be uh, challenged and excited or uh, provoked, at least, to thought about the word uh, of God and about the reality of God and, and Jesus. Um, but by way of introduction, I like uh, uh, prison films. I think prison films are good. Especially prison films that have got stories in them about escapes. They are excellent. I really like them. Because they very often highlight um, unlikely heroes. So you've got unlikely heroes that come out in prison uh, film escape stories. Someone like, well, actually, this isn't really, this isn't an escape I never thought of that. The guy actually dies in this film. So it's, it's not really an escape. It's John Coffey from uh, The Green Mile. But it's a great film about prisons. Andy Dufresne's from Shawshank Redemption and his escape. And that story, tremendous. Lincoln Burroughs from Prison Break, which is the name that I've given to the sermon because this story about a sermon. Or uh, for the older people here, Hiltz, uh, Steve McQueen from The Great Escape. Great stories, you know. Uh, there's something about these stories that, are, well, they appeal to me. I don't know if they appeal to you. Uh, but the same kind of themes that are in this uh, passage in the Bible, I, I do think they inhabit the themes of these films as well. There's, there's issues of injustice and there's issues of uh, isolation and fear and freedom and life and death. And in many ways, when we come to church, these are the kind of issues we deal with. We don't generally talk about flower arranging and stuff like that. It tends to be kind of big issues, which I think is sometimes why people avoid it and don't want to come because we feel the need, the importance in our own lives and because of what Jesus Christ has done for us to recognize and deal with some of these big issues that are maybe bigger than just the day-to-day issues that sometimes fill our lives. But these are our issues, aren't they, to greater or lesser extent, however we articulate them uh, in our lives. But for us, the unlikely hero uh, in this story is or, or the unlikely hero in every time that we come together and the word is preached and uh, we worship is Jesus Christ. He's our unlikely hero. I was listening to a sermon last night from uh, Tim Keller in America, and he was saying uh, that, you know, you, you, would never have a, you would never have the founder of a church, Jesus Christ. You would never have this significant and important, not just person, but, but God, uh, who, whose almost his last words were words of despair and forsakenness. My God, my God, on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't make that up. Uh, so he's an unlikely hero, this uh, Jewish... Uh, God-claiming man who dies on a cross uh, and has transformed the lives of millions, including our own and including Andy and Emma's uh, today, is the unlikely hero of uh, the sermon and of our lives as Christians. And so this story is, is one of the stories about the founding of the church in the New Testament. And not only is there an unlikely hero, but there's unlikely founding members that I mentioned just at the beginning. 
it's the story of the first three people that become believers, followers of Jesus Christ, whose lives are, are converted and changed. And it's a slave girl, whose name isn't given, and a, a businesswoman, whose name is Lydia. Uh, we didn't read about that just before. And then this uh, a prison officer, who would have been a kind of middle-class uh, Roman citizen, whose name also we're not given here in the story. So there's three. Un- un- the founding members of the church were kind of unlikely, especially when you consider that when Paul and Silas went to Philippi, as where they went everywhere else, they would first go into the synagogue. They would first go to where the Jewish people worship, because remember, Jesus came from uh, Israel, and it was Jewish himself. And they would go there with the gospel. But in most cases, the Jewish people had no interest in Jesus and in the message. They too thought he was unlikely. They too thought he was just a, a, an idiot, a kind of village idiot, sim- simple man. No point. We don't believe in that kind of Messiah. A Messiah who died on a cross? No, thank you. We want a Messiah that's going to be on a throne and who's going to get rid of Roman occupation. That's the kind of Messiah we want. So they rejected Jesus. And uh, a respectable Jewish man of the day, for example, would make a very politically incorrect prayer every day, and one that certainly wouldn't be sanctioned by Jesus or by the Bible. But he would say, I thank God today that I was not born a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. And here's Jesus Christ forming the church with a slave, a woman, and a Gentile, a Roman, someone who wasn't a Jew, Roman. And it's almost just to seal the fact that their rejection was not acceptable and their thinking was not acceptable. And Jesus forms this church in Philippi that that later uh, letters in the the New Testament uh, reach out to. It was a Roman colony. I just want to say a few things about this story, and I hope that they will apply to us in our own lives to a greater or lesser degree. And the first is uh, that it was, and they're all in the theme of everything being unlikely. So it's an unlikely imprisonment here. Here's Paul and Silas, these early apostles, preachers, teachers, uh, going about with the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the gospel message, which uh, we don't think has changed over 2,000 years, is that Jesus is God's son, and that he has come uh, to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we deserve, and has resurrected to show his power over death, and uh, that as we trust in him, we can know forgiveness and hope and life and a future. It, it doesn't really change, and it's what baptism symbolizes uh, as we perform that later. So they were telling that good news, that God can transform your life. And they brought that good news to a slave girl who was uh, possessed of uh, some kind of spirit of divination, which meant she could tell the future. And she was used by her owners uh, to make a lot of money because of that. And when she was healed of that, she could no longer uh, tell the future in this kind of dark way. And so not everyone was pleased with that. The people weren't pleased. Her owners weren't pleased. And the city magistrates weren't pleased. They were kind of a bit uneasy and horrified by what had happened and what uh, uh, Paul and and Silas were able to do uh, in this girl's life or what Jesus was able to do in this girl's life. And so they beat them up horribly and uh, imprisoned them in the kind of deepest part of the prison. It's kind of unlikely imprisonment in many ways. Um, uh, In other words, this good news and the message of Jesus Christ wasn't welcomed by all, by any stretch of the imagination. They didn't recant, uh, and they didn't change the message. It was true, and it was powerful in their lives. 
And the reality for us, I think, as uh, centuries have passed, is that that same truth uh, is applicable today. Not everybody is interested in or welcomes the news of Jesus Christ. For the slave owners, it was about competing priorities. They weren't able to make money quite as much. And for the magistrates, maybe it was just they were afraid of the unrest that was happening in the city uh, because of these guys that were coming in with this message. And so there was opposition. Opposition personally and opposition kind of uh, in the community. And that's still the same. There's always a reaction uh, to the message of Jesus Christ. And there's always a reaction in our own hearts also. We either accept that message or we're kind of... It ruffles our priorities and it ruffles our thinking and it ruffles our maybe our comforts and so the challenge is to consider what response we have to the message of Jesus Christ there was an unlikely imprisonment here but even more so there was an unlikely response to that imprisonment uh, from Paul and Silas in this passage uh, because we, we, we picked up the story, we started reading the story where they were in prison at midnight and they were praying and singing hymns to God. Okay? That's an unlikely, by anyone's stretch of the imagination, even Shawshank Redemption, that is an unlikely response to being imprisoned uh, that they had there. Uh, Paul and Silas were no flash harries. They weren't, kind of, they weren't going into prison um, as a kind of uh, a symbolic protest about, you know, their, their freedoms had been denied them and they, they wanted freedom of speech and freedom of religion and we'll just go in, in a prison and we'll stand up for our rights and, and you know, uh, bring it into the public eye. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't that kind of culture and society. They had been beaten and whipped within an inch of their lives here. They were lacerated and broken And rather than maybe crying for mercy at this point or uh, cursing their imprisoners, uh, those who imprisoned them, or weeping uh, in rage or in anger or wishing beyond hope that they had never met this slave girl, nah, they were worshipping. They were praising God. Uh, They weren't masochists. They weren't they weren't looking for this. They didn't long for it. But they'd seen something very significant happen in the life of the slave girl. They'd seen her being transformed and given hope. And they knew their own lives. And they recalled the change that Jesus Christ had made in their own lives. Remember who Paul had been. Paul was a bounty hunter for Christians. That's what he did. He went around the country bounty hunting this new Christian sect that was being formed, as it were, that they saw. And he went to imprison and beat up and killed. He was a witness of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Uh, The clothes of Stephen were laid at the feet of a man called Saul. So he was a bounty hunter. He was a killer uh, previously. And now here he is uh, in prison himself, transformed and changed, uh, and uh, having a relationship with this Jesus Christ who he met on that famous road to Damascus, uh, which uh, we often talk about. and who'd been touched and changed and forgiven and uh, given love and grace in his life. So there was a reason why they could worship and praise, even though the outward circumstances they were in were really bleak. And uh, that's significant. 
I think also for ourselves and for our own perspective. I think very often our perspective goes as Christians, and we forget the unlikely Savior that we have uh, who is this carpenter from Nazareth, but is divine, who's died and has rose again, has changed our lives and changed our future and changed the trajectory of our lives, changed where we're going, um, changed what we can do, changed our hearts, forgiven our sins, uh, taken us from death to life, and all that goes with that, both in this life and eternally. And so we, it's great for us to come together and worship as Christians. It's significant, and that's why we do it every Sunday morning, on our th- first day of the week, resurrection morning, remembering our Savior. a living Savior, and we do that because it gives us the right, re- it, it recalibrates our lives again to that perspective, which is so important for us. the festival had ended. (laughs) Okay, there's also an unlikely transformation. That's the third thing. Unlikely transformation. In verse 27, this chapter, uh, we're told that the the jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword, was about to kill himself. And uh, Paul had shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So there's an amazing transformation. This is the third story, remember, the slave girl. And uh, there's uh, uh, the uh, Lydia, and now there's the prison officer uh, here. And there's this amazing transformation. It's triggered by the desperation of his situation. He's about to take his own life because, you know, again, the society and the culture and everything else is very different. If uh, he woke up in the morning, or if he didn't wake up in the morning, but even if he woke up with this amazing earthquake, and all the prisoners who their chains had been loosed, um, if they'd all escaped, and he had to face the magistrates in the morning, he would lose his life because they'd escaped, because he was the one that was responsible, ultimately. So rather than face the ignominy and the shame of that, he was going to take his own life. He was going to kill himself. Uh, But uh, there was a transformation that was accomplished by the grace of God, because the prisoners, Paul and Silas, said, don't do that. Don't. We're all still here. The singing prisoners were still there. They hadn't left. They hadn't escaped. And almost, obviously, we've only got a little bit of the story here, uh, on the bones of the story, but the prison officer obviously recognized something bigger was going on. Something bigger was happening here. Maybe he had heard the message that they'd preached earlier on about Jesus, the good news. Maybe he knew the slave girl. Maybe he passed it every day on the way to his work and saw the amazing transformation in her life. We don't really know. But he was certainly impressed with them, with their singing at midnight, and with the, the consistency of, of their grace and love to him, uh, even in the prison. And when he's in this condition, he cries out, Lord, what, what must I do to be saved? And I don't think it just means from this immediate situation. There's a kind of spiritual undertone there. What must I do to be saved? Knowing that they had this message from Jesus Christ of salvation. And the answer then is uh, the same as the answer now. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the the centrality of Jesus, the message of Jesus, uh, the the reality of what Jesus has done in our own lives still remains relevant and still remains the same. And the message is still the same. It is this recognition that Jesus alone uh, can defeat us, uh, our mortality and our death and our sin, our separation from him and 
can change our hearts and renew us, keep us from a lost eternity apart from him. And they go on to explain the word of God a little bit more to him in verse 32 so that he understands Jesus more. And although we might not, in our own lives today, we might not have such a desperate cry of, uh, uh, cry of need, as it were, uh, because it might not be so tangibly desperate for us. But there, there are a lot of people today in the world who, who are in desperate need. We are very comfortable. Uh, things are great, at least socially and, and culturally. Many places, as I prayed earlier, that need uh, absolute uh, help in desperate suicidal situations. But still for us, there needs to be that cry of desperation, even in the sunshine, even when things are going well, even when we're young and at just the peak of our life and uh, our our existence, uh, is that cry of desperation when we recognize spiritual realities and when we recognize our position before God and uh, our guilt before him according to himself and our lostness spiritually and our death and that he alone can transform these things and make a fantastic change for us that message and that transformation is still the same so there's a transformation that's been Andy and Emma's lives and we hope in our lives and uh, it's good sometimes just to remember that okay just about we're just about there we've got a couple more things to say just as we close and uh, uh, bring it around a little bit more to the church and baptism because at the same time, the fourth thing is that there was an unlikely community born uh, that day. There was uh, a slave woman, uh, there was uh, Lydia, and now there's this uh, uh, Roman uh, prisoner guard. And it starts in many ways, as it does with other. It starts with uh, this Roman prisoner uh, guard rather opening his home in verse 34. We're told the remarkable thing. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And so there's an amazing amount of risk in that comment, in that verse that we don't really pick up on. Uh, But here's this guy who was about to uh, take his own life because he thought the prisoners had escaped because he he was so afraid of the authorities and the brutality of the Roman Uh, regime at that time, who would have held him accountable. And here he is, a few minutes later, he's he's willing to take them out of the prison into his own house. These are prisoners. They were in the deepest part of the prison. They were, uh, it was kind of highly public as it could be at that time, uh, even though there wasn't Twitter and all the rest of it. Uh, But it was was well known, it was public, it was in the public domain. And uh, here he is taking them to his own house. I mean, how risky was that? How ridiculous. What a change there was as he trusts them. They've become brothers, as it were, uh, Christian brothers. And uh, there's a great symbolism of the barriers being removed as he takes them uh, to his own house. And there's further symbolism in the story, and it's a nice touch, is that he, this prisoner, this might be a middle-class kind of Roman citizen, washes these Jewish prisoners' wounds. It, it doesn't happen. It wouldn't happen. It, we take that for granted. We just re- we kind of skim over that. There's a remarkable change has taken place uh, culturally and conventionally. He is washing their wounds from the, the beatings they received, and they are washing him with water in baptism. So there's that lovely kind of juxta kind of position of things going on where... Uh, 
uh, he washed their wounds and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So he's baptized in obedience to what Jesus said. You know, go and make disciples of all nations, every nation, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, I'm with you till the end of the age. And that badge of belonging, it was that sim- sim- symbolism of cleansing, of being forgiven, of uh, new life, of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the changing us. It's a, a, a mark of that great covenant of grace that God enters uh, in with us. A symbolic, outward mark of that grace. So this unlikely Roman convert becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ and everything changes. So there's a community there. And it's marked by celebration and by joy. And he was filled with joy. And we're told that about the other accounts as well. There was a lot of joy. And you do that, you open your home. He opens his home. It's a great risk to do so. But he opens his home. And what do they do? They have a meal together. And it's a joyful, happy occasion. There's a lot of celebration and joy. And I hope that today will be a joyful day. Uh, it's a great day. It's a day of celebration. It's a day of happiness. It's a day of new life and uh, a marking of that new life and of eating together and of the symbolism of baptism uh, as we come together. And uh, it was, there was that whole exhilaration of, of the freedom. You know, this prison officer who ultimately, again, in terms of the symbolism, was enslaved and was imprisoned in his own heart uh, because of sin, is set free. And he's released, uh, as it were, spiritually. And there's great joy and there's great sense of him being rescued and of what that means. I watched uh, Shawshank Redemption the other night for about the 36th time. And uh, that great moment, is it, when Andy Dufresne comes out of the, the sewage pipe and he walks along the water uh, to get clean and then he stands up with a big smile on his face and with the rain pouring down in the middle of the night because he's set free. And there's sort of this great moment of tense joy and freedom as he's no longer uh, in the prison cell and uh, he's the only one, uh, the narrator says, who has crawled through 500 yards of sewage and come out clean on the other side. And, you know, that's a great picture of that story and of the joy that he had uh, but it's nothing you know obviously nothing it's only a story it's nothing compared with this joy that marked this celebration that marked uh, this uh, Philippian jailer who had come to faith and we remember it's not just when it was a lovely happy occasion but remember the, the guys remember Paul and Silas they were singing and, and joyful in the prison in the darkness uh, when they were beaten raw and there was that sen- a deep sense of joy that transcended their circumstances in other words it wasn't just about having a good time it, w- it transcended their circumstances and we find that as Christians that uh, we have the ability oh, God gives us very often we don't take it we, but we have the ability to be serene uh, God gifts the ability to be serene and joyful even in difficult circumstances because we can He's graciously showed us a bigger picture about life and about our position with him as believers. So I think that even in the dark times of our lives, we, are counter, we ought to be counter-cultural. And I confess, and I'm sure we all confess, it's unbelievable how much we moan as Christians, how much we grumble and complain and find fault and criticize and are embittered and don't 
apply this grace of God to our lives. It's somewhere up there. It's an insurance policy for the future somewhere. But it's in something that's transforming us from the inside so often. And the truth of the passage here reminds us uh, that that shouldn't be the case. Baptism and worship is a reminder to that. So this community is marked by joy. It's the opening of its home. And very, very lastly, uh, with the grace of God in this man's life comes influence. And there's a lot of influence sort of running around in this story. Uh, in each of the cases of people that become Christians, there's a cost, uh, there's worship, there's transformation, and there's influence. Uh, some, some of it's negative. The, the authorities, that's very negative. They don't like what they see. It's negative. And the owners of the slave guards, negative influence. But also there's a lot of positive influence. The Lydia's friends, uh, the prisoners, not just Paul and Silas, but the, the other prisoners who took note of the, the singing, the jailer himself, and their households. It's mentioned twice in this passage. So the gospel changes us as individuals, but the promise is that that change will influence other people too, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively. And that's a challenge to our testimony as believers, as Christians here today. You know, is, is our testimony of Jesus, is it, is it challenging? Is it influencing anybody? Do, does anybody know? Or is it absolutely secret? Um, but that influence is formalized uh, in the Bible, in, in promise, uh, where this uh, promise of grace is to you and your children from Acts 2.39. That's covenantal language, right from the, the Old Testament where the covenant was formed between God and his people. And it's a, a kind of formal recognition in a sense of that family is that most uh, foundational of all community and of all society. And so as a special place in God's economy. Right through the Old Testament, uh, this covenant of grace as it was being outworked uh, through Abraham and through his seed uh, was to Abraham and to his children. That sign of belonging, that sign of promise was to given to believers and also to the children of believers. And that is in circumcision. That's broadened uh, in the New Testament to baptism. And so there's a great responsibility and a great privilege on us today uh, to influence our families for Christ through uh, this recognition of, of baptism and its important place in our lives it points uh, us to our ongoing need of Jesus in our lives as parents. You'll need Jesus a lot uh, to be good parents, and uh, you'll need to be forgiven a lot as parents. Um, and your children will need to forgive you, and as they need to forgive us, and we'll need to forgive them. And they will grow up with that knowledge that your parents aren't perfect. Uh, significant, but certainly not perfect. Uh, who need a saviour and that they will grow up seeing that same need. And it's a great privilege to be able to baptise Joshua today and uh, to uh, kind of formally and publicly and visually uh, bring him into that place of privilege. Um, and we as a congregation also take vows today uh, to uh, care for, to pray for, and to uh, be involved in his spiritual development here in church. So we have the children. And, you know, I, I just say it again before I close, we've done it a lot here. We've had a lot of baptisms. And you've all vowed, uh, as I vowed, that we would be remembering them, praying for them, uh, involving them in our prayers and in our lives. And so we remind ourselves of that again today.
And we hope that uh, Joshua will come up, grow up to know and to love Jesus Christ for himself, which he must do. Uh, because baptism doesn't save anyone. It's only sprinkling or pouring with water. It's symbolic, as it is even for uh, grown-ups who are baptized when they come to faith in Jesus. It doesn't, the act itself doesn't save anybody. It points to the Savior, who's the one who saves. So, uh, we look forward in just a moment uh, to that baptism, and uh, we hope and pray that God uh, will be with us as we uh, do so. I'm going to pray very briefly, and we're going to sing another psalm, um, again, which was chosen by Andy and Emma. And if during the singing of that psalm, Buzz is going to go down and get the children, so they'll just come back up uh, so that they can watch and be part of this as well. And we'll then go on with the baptism. So I'll just bow our heads briefly in prayer. Father God, we ask and pray that you would help us today. Help us to know you uh, through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And bring us to that place, if we are not Christians, of crying out like the jailer also cried out, what must I do uh, to be saved? We pray that you would give us that perspective of being spiritually lost uh, until we find uh, our way uh, in relationship with Christ uh, through repentance and faith and help us, we ask and pray, uh, to go on that search if we haven't yet and find out more about Jesus in the way that the word of God was opened uh, by Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer as he learned more about Jesus. So may we focus on you on your grace and on your goodness. We thank you that you transformed our lives. And uh, we ask for forgiveness for the times we forget that or that we're rubbish Christians or that we feel or act very untransformed and act in a bitter or a graceless or unkind or selfish or proud or um, judgmental way. Forgive us for these things and always take us back to the foot of the cross and to the amazing grace that is ours in Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.